be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Phantom of the Opera, Chapter 5, Box 5, by Gaston LaRue. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Armand Moncharmin wrote such voluminous memoirs during the fairly long period of his co-management that we may well ask if he ever found time to attend to the affairs of the opera, otherwise than by telling what went on there. Monsieur Moncharmin did not know a note of music. He dabbled a little in society journalism and enjoyed considerable private income. Lastly, he was a charming fellow and showed that he was not lacking in intelligence, for as soon as he made up his mind to be a sleeping partner in the opera, he selected the best possible active manager and went straight to Fermin Richard. Thurman Richard was a very distinguished composer who had published a number of successful pieces of all kinds and who liked nearly every form of music and every sort of musician. Clearly, therefore, it was the duty of every sort of musician to like Monsieur Thurman Richard. The only thing to be said against him were that he was rather masterful in his ways and endowed with a very hasty temper. The first few days which the partners spent at the opera were given over to the delight of finding themselves the head of so magnificent an enterprise and they had forgotten all about that curious, fantastic story of the ghost, when an incident occurred that proved to them that the joke, if joke it were, was not over. Monsieur Fermin Richard reached his office that morning at eleven o'clock. His secretary, Monsieur Remy, showed himself half a dozen letters which he had not opened because they were marked private. 
one of the letters had at once attracted Richard's attention, not only because the envelope was addressed in red ink, but because he seemed to have seen the writing before. He soon remembered that it was the red handwriting in which the memorandum book had been so curiously completed. He recognized the clumsy, childish hand. He opened the letter and read, Dear Mr. Manager, I am so sorry to have to trouble you at a time when you must be so busy, renewing important engagements, signing fresh ones, and generally displaying your excellent taste. I know what you have done for Carlotta, Sorelli, and little James, and for a few others whose admirable qualities of talent or genius you have suspected. Of course, when I use these words, I do not mean to apply them to La Corletta, who sings like a squirt and who ought never to have been allowed to leave the ambassadeurs in the Café Jacquin, nor to La Sorelli, who owes her success mainly to the coach builders, nor to Little James, who dances like a calf in a field. And I am not speaking of Christine Day either, though her genius is certain. Whereas your jealousy prevents her from creating any important part. When all is said, you are free to conduct your little business as you think best, are you not? All the same, I should like to take advantage of the fact that you have not yet turned Christine Day out of doors by hearing her this evening in the part of Sibel, as that of Margarita has been forbidden her since her triumph of the other evening, and I will ask you not to dispose of my box today, nor on the following days, for I cannot end this letter without telling you how disagreeably surprised I have been once or twice to hear, on arriving at the opera, that my box had been sold at the box office by your orders. I did not protest, first, because I dislike scandal, and, second, because I thought that your predecessor, Debonet and Poligny, who were always charming to me, had neglected before leaving to mention my little fads to you. I have now received a reply from those gentlemen to my letter asking for an explanation, 
and this reply proves that you know all about my memorandum book, and, consequently, that you are treating me with outrageous contempt. If you wish to live in peace, you must not begin by taking away my private box. Believe me to be, dear Mr. Manager, without prejudice to these little observations. Your most humble and obedient servant, Opera Ghost. The letter was accompanied by a cutting from the agony column of the review Theatral, which ran, O.G., There is no excuse for R and M. We told them and left your memorandum book in their hands. Kind regards. Monsieur Furman Richard had hardly finished reading this letter when Monsieur Armand Charmin entered, carrying one exactly similar They looked at each other and burst out laughing. They are keeping up the joke, said Monsieur Richard, but I don't call it funny. What does it all mean? asked Monsieur Charmin. Do they imagine that because they have been managers of the opera, we are going to let them have a box for an indefinite period. I am not in the mood to let myself be laughed at long, said Furman Richard. It's harmless enough, observed Armand Moncharmin. What is it they really want? A box for tonight? Monsieur Furman Richard told his secretary to send Box 5 on the Grand Tier to Debonet and Poligny. If it was not sold, it was not. It was sent off to them. Debonet lived at the corner of Rue Scribe and the Boulevard des Copinches. Poligny in the Rue Abur. Oh. Ghost's two letters had been posted at the Boulevard de Capucci's post office. As Moncharmin remarked after examining the envelopes. You see, said Richard. They shrugged their shoulders and regretted that two men of that age should amuse themselves with such childish tricks. This might have been civil for all that, said Moncharmin. Did you notice how they treat us with regard to Carlotta, Sorelli, and little Chames? Why, my dear fellow, these two are mad with jealousy. To think that they went to the expense of an advertisement in the Revue Theatrale. 
have they nothing better to do? By the way, said Monshaman, they seem to be greatly interested in that little Christine Day. You know as well as I do that she has the reputation of being quite good, said Richard. Reputations are easily obtained, replied Monshaman. Haven't I a reputation for knowing all about music? And I don't know one key from another. Don't be afraid. You never had that reputation, Richard declared. Thereupon, he ordered the artists to be shown in, who, for the last two hours, had been walking up and down outside the door, behind which fame and fortune, or dismissal, awaited them. The whole day was spent in discussing, negotiating, signing or cancelling contracts, and the two overworked managers went to bed early, without so much as casting a glance at Box 5 to see whether Monsieur Debonnet and Monsieur Poligny were enjoying the performance. Next morning, the managers received a card of thanks from the ghost. Dear Mr. Manager, Thanks. Charming evening. Day exquisite. Choruses want waking up. Carlotta, a splendid commonplace instrument. We'll write you soon for the 240,000 francs, or 233,424 francs and 70 cents, to be correct. Debonnet and Poligny have sent me the 6,575 francs and 30 cents, representing the first ten days of my allowance for the current year. Their privileges finished on the evening of the tenth. Kind regards, O.G. There was a letter from Debonnet and Poligny. We are much obliged for your kind thoughts of us, but you will easily understand that the prospect of again hearing Faust, pleasant though it is to ex-managers of the opera, cannot make us forget that we have no right to occupy Box 5 on the Grand Tier, which is exclusive property of him of whom we spoke to you when we went through the memorandum book with you for the last time. See Clause 98, Final Paragraph. Except, gentlemen, etc., Oh, those fellows are beginning to annoy me, shouted Furman Richard, snatching up the letter. And that 
evening box five was sold. The next morning, Monsieur Richard and Moncharmin, on reaching their office, found an inspector's report relating to an incident that had happened the night before in box five. I give the essential part of the report. I was obliged to call in a municipal guard twice this evening to clear box five on the grand tier. Once at the beginning and once in the middle of the second act. The occupant, who arrived as the curtain rose on the second act, created a regular scandal by their laughter and their ridiculous observations. There were cries of hush all around them, and the whole house was beginning to protest. When the box keeper came to fetch me, I entered the box and said what I thought necessary. The people did not seem to me to be in their right mind, and they made stupid remarks. I said that, if the noise was repeated, I should be compelled to clear the box. The moment I left, I heard the laughing again, with fresh protests from the house. I returned with a municipal guard, who turned them out. They protested still laughing, saying they would not go unless they had their money back. At last they became quiet, and I allowed them to enter the box again. The laughter at once recommenced, and, this time, I had them turned out indefinitely. Send for the inspector, said Richard to his secretary, who had already read the report and marked it with blue pencil. Monsieur Remy, the secretary, had foreseen the order and called an inspector at once. Tell us what happened, said Richard bluntly. The inspector began to splutter and referred to the report. Well, but what were those people laughing at? asked Monshaman. They must have been dining, sir, and seemed more inclined to lark about than to listen to good music. The moment they entered the box, they came out again and called the box keeper, who asked them what they wanted. They said, Look in the box, there's no one there, is there? No, said the woman. Well, said they, when we went in, we heard a voice saying that the box was taken. Monsieur Monshamin could not help smiling as he looked at Monsieur Richard, but Monsieur Richard did not smile. 
He himself had done too much in that way in his time not to recognize in the inspector's story all the marks of one of those practical jokes which begin by amusing and end by enraging the victims. The inspector, to curry favor with Monsieur Monchamin, who was smiling, thought it best to give a smile too. A most unfortunate smile. Monsieur Richard glared at his subordinate, who henceforth made it his business to display a face of utter consternation. However, when the people arrived, roared Richard, there was no one in the box, was there? Not a soul, sir, not a soul, nor in the box on the right, nor in the box on the left, not a soul, sir, I swear. The box keeper told it me often enough, which proves that it was all a joke. Oh, you agree, do you? said Richard. You agree, it's a joke, and you think it's funny, no doubt. I think it in very bad taste, sir. And what did the box keeper say? Oh, she just said that it was the opera ghost. That's all she said. And the inspector grinned. But he soon found that he made a mistake in grinning. For the words had no sooner left his mouth than Monsieur Richard from gloomy became furious. Send for the box keeper. He shouted, send for her this minute, this minute, and bring her in to me, and turn all those people out. The inspector tried to protest, but Richard closed his mouth with an angry order to hold his tongue. Then, when the wretched man's lips seemed shut forever, the manager commanded him to open them once more. Who is this opera ghost? He snarled. But the inspector was by this time incapable of speaking a word. He managed to convey, by a despairing gesture, that he knew nothing about it, or rather that he did not wish to know. Have you ever seen him? Have you seen the opera ghost? The inspector, by means of a vigorous shake of the head, denied ever having seen the ghost in question. Very well, said Monsieur Richard coldly. The inspector's eyes started out of his head as though to ask why the manager had uttered the ominous very well. Because I'm going to settle the account of anyone who has not seen him, 
explained the manager. As he seems to be everywhere, I can't have people telling me that they see him nowhere. I like people to work for me when I employ them. Having said this, Monsieur Richard paid no attention to the inspector and discussed various matters of business with his acting manager, who had entered the room meanwhile. The inspector thought he could go and was gently, oh so gently, sidling towards the door when Monsieur Richard nailed the man to the floor with a thundering, Stay where you are. Monsieur Remy had sent for the boxkeeper to the Rue de Provence, close to the opera, where she was engaged as a portress. She soon made her appearance. What's your name? Madame Giry. You know me well enough, sir. I'm the mother of little Giry, little Meg. What? This was said in so rough and solemn a tone that, for a moment, Monsieur Richard was impressed. He looked at Madame Giry in her faded shawl, her worn shoes, her old taffeta dress and dingy bonnet. It was quite evident from the manager's attitude that he either did not know or could not remember having met Madame Giry, nor even little Giry, nor even little Meg. But Madame Giry's pride was so great that the celebrated boxkeeper imagined that everybody knew her. Never heard of her, the manager declared, but that's no reason, Madame Giry, why I shouldn't ask you what happened last night to make you and the inspector call in a municipal guard. I was just wanting to see you, sir, and talk to you about it, so that you mightn't have the same unpleasantness as Monsieur Debonnet and Monsieur Poligny. They wouldn't listen to me either at first. I'm not asking you about all that. I'm asking what happened last night. Madame Giry turned purple with indignation. Never had she been spoken to like that. She rose as though to go, gathered up the folds of her skirt and waving the feathers of her dingy bonnet with dignity. But, changing her mind, she sat down again and said in a haunty voice, I'll tell you what happened. The ghost was annoyed again. Thereupon, as Monsieur Richard was on the point of bursting out, Monsieur Moncharmin interfered and conducted 
the interrogatory, whence it appeared that Madame Giry thought it quite natural that a voice should be heard to say that the box was taken, when there was nobody in the box. She was unable to explain this phenomenon, which was not new to her, except by the intervention of the ghost. Nobody could see the ghost in his box, but everybody could hear him. She had often heard him, and they could believe her, for she always spoke truth. They could ask Monsieur Debonet and Monsieur Poligny, and anybody who knew her, and also Monsieur Isidore Sack, who had had a leg broken by the ghost. Indeed, said Monsharman, interrupting her, did the ghost break poor Isidore Sack's leg? Madame Giry opened her eyes with astonishment at such ignorance. However, she consented to enlighten those two poor innocents. The thing had happened in Monsieur Debonet and Monsieur Poligny's time, also in Box 5 and also during a performance of Faust. Madame Giry coughed, cleared her throat. It sounded as though she were preparing to sing the whole of Gonod's score, and began. It was like this, sir. That night, Monsieur Manera and his lady, the jewellers in the Rue Mogador, were sitting in front of the box with their great friend, Monsieur Isidore Sack, sitting behind Madame Manera. Mephistopheles was singing. Madame Giry here burst into song herself. Katrina, while you play at sleeping. And then Monsieur Manera heard a voice in his right ear. His wife was on his left, saying, Ha ha, Julie's not playing at sleeping. His wife happened to be called Julie. So, Monsieur Manera turned to the right to see who was talking to him like that. Nobody there. He rubs his ears and asks himself if he's dreaming. Then Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. But perhaps I'm boring you, gentlemen. No, no, go on. You are too good, gentlemen, with a smirk. Well then, Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. Madame Giry burst into song again. Saint, unclose thy portals holy, and accord the bliss to a mortal bending lowly of a pardon kiss. And then Monsieur Manera again hears the voice in his right ear, 
saying this time, Haha, Julie wouldn't mind according a kiss to Isidore. Then he turns round again, but this time to the left, and what do you think he sees? Isidore, who had taken his lady's hand and was covering it with kisses through the little round place in the glove, like this gentleman, rapturously kissing the bit of palm left bare in the middle of her thread gloves. Then they had a lively time between them. Bang, bang. Monsieur Manira, who was big and strong, like you, Monsieur Richard, gave two blows to Monsieur Isidore Sack, who was small and weak like Monsieur Montcharmin, saving his presence. There was a great uproar. People in the house shouted, That will do. Stop them. He'll kill him. Then, at last, Monsieur Isidore sat managed to run away. Then the ghost had not broken his leg, asked Monsieur Moncharmin, a little vexed that the figure had made so little impression on Madame Giry. He did break it for him, sir, replied Madame Giry haughtily. He broke it for him on the grand staircase, which he ran down too fast, sir, and it will be long before the poor gentleman will be able to go up it again. Did the ghost tell you what he said in Monsieur Manira's right ear? asked Moncharmin, with a gravity which he thought exceedingly humorous. No, sir. It was Monsieur Manira himself, so. But you have spoken to the ghost, my good lady. As I'm speaking to you now, my good sir, Madame Giry replied. And, when the ghost speaks to you, what does he say? Well, he tells me to bring him a footstool. This time, Richard burst out laughing, as did Moncharmin and Remy, the secretary. Only the inspector, warned by experience, was careful not to laugh, while Madame Giry ventured to adopt an attitude that was positively threatening. Instead of laughing, she cried indignantly, You'd do better to do as Monsieur Poligny did, who found out for himself. Found out about what? asked Moncharmin, who had never been so amused in his life. About the ghost, of course. Look here. She suddenly calmed herself, feeling that this was a solemn moment in her life. Look here, she repeated. They were playing Le Juvie, 
Monsieur Poligny thought he would watch the performance from the ghost's box. Well, when Leopold cries, Let us fly, you know, and Eliza stops them and says, Whither go ye? Well, Monsieur Poligny, I was watching him from the back of the next box, which was empty. Monsieur Poligny got up and walked out quite stiffly, like a statue, and before I had time to ask him, Whither go ye? Like Eliza, he was down the staircase, but without breaking his leg. Still, that doesn't let us know how the opera ghost came to ask you for a footstool, insisted Monsieur Moncharmin. Well, from that evening, no one tried to take the ghost's private box from him. The manager gave orders that he was to have it to teach performance, and whenever he came, he asked me for a footstool. Tut tut, a ghost asking for a footstool. Then this ghost of yours is a woman. No, the ghost is a man. How do you know? He has a man's voice. Oh, such a lovely man's voice. This is what happens. When he comes to the opera, it's usually in the middle of the first act. He gives three little taps on the door of box five. The first time I heard those three taps, when I knew there was no one in the box, you can think how puzzled I was. I opened the door, listened, looked, nobody, and then I heard a voice say, Madame Jules, my poor husband's name was Jules, a footstool please, saving your presence gentlemen, it made me feel all overish like, but the voice went on, don't be frightened, Madame Jules, I'm the opera ghost, and the voice was so soft and kind that I hardly felt frightened. The voice was sitting in the corner chair, on the right, in the front row. Was there anyone in the box on the right of box five? asked Moncharmin. No. Box seven and box three, the one on the left, were both empty. The curtain had only just gone up. And what did you do? Well, I brought the footstool. Of course, it wasn't for himself he wanted it, but for his lady. But I never heard her nor saw her. Eh? What? So now the ghost is married. The eyes of the two managers travelled from Madame Giry to the inspector, who, standing behind the boxkeeper, was waving his arms to attract their attention. He tapped 
tapped his forehead with a distressful forefinger to convey his opinion that the widow Jules Jury was most certainly mad, a piece of pantomime which confirmed Monsieur Richard in his determination to get rid of an inspector who kept a lunatic in his service. Meanwhile, the worthy lady went on about her ghost, now painting his generosity. At the end of the performance, he always gives me two francs, sometimes five, sometimes even ten, when he has been many days without coming. Only, since people have begun to annoy him again, he gives me nothing at all. Excuse me, good woman, said Moncharmin, while Madame Giry tossed the feathers in her dingy hat at the persistent familiarity. Excuse me, how does the ghost manage to give you your two francs? Why, he leaves them on the little shelf in the box, of course. I find them with the program, which I always give him. Some evenings, I find flowers in the box, a rose that must have dropped from his lady's bodice, for he brings a lady with him sometimes. One day, they left a fan behind them. Oh, the ghost left a fan, did he? And what did you do with it? Well, I brought it back to the box next night. Here the inspector's voice was raised. You've broken the rules. I shall have to fine you, Madame Jeery. Hold your tongue, you fool, muttered Monsieur Fermin Richard. You brought back the fan, and then... Well, then, they took it away with them. It was not there at the end of the performance, and in its place they left me a box of English sweets, which I'm very fond of. That's one of the ghost's pretty thoughts. That will do, Madame Jury. You can go. When Madame Jury had bowed herself out, with the dignity that never deserted her. The manager told the inspector that they had decided to dispense with the old madwoman's service, and, when he had gone in his turn, they instructed the acting manager to make up the inspector's accounts. Left alone, the managers told each other the idea which they both had in mind, which was that they should look into the little matter of box five themselves. <laughs>